fitness, nutrition, sleep, longevity, performance, fat loss, and all the keys to a life of health, happiness, and success. I'm Jed Zimmer, your host, and welcome to The Health Project. Welcome back, guys. I've got episode 43 tonight of The Health Project, which is, uh, yeah, it's good to be back. It's obviously been a little while in between our, our last episode and now, but um, nonetheless, it's it's great to be back. And the, the next couple of episodes, I, I have no doubt that you guys are certainly going to love, and I'm looking forward to bringing them to you. So... That, start, that kicks off with tonight where I was very fortunate enough to be able to sit down a little while ago with uh, Dr. Peter Bruckner, who, again, very fortunate. We were able to communicate back and forth for a few weeks there via email. He was able to pass on a lot of information to me, some recommendations. Uh, he, he gave me some product listings and so forth that I've been able to help and recommend to a lot of my clients. So it's a it's a really good episode tonight, guys. We... We go into a lot of things that are going to benefit the athletic population as well as just the general population at all because he is a um, he is a wealth of knowledge in in all things health and he's sort of he's tailored a lot of his his work and business model towards the nutrition side of things now which can benefit and everyone out there. So um, I won't I won't give away too much. He's uh, he's been involved with the Australian cricket team, so he was the the head doctor and medical physician there. He he's worked with the Melbourne Football Club, Liverpool FC. So uh, his his area of expertise is incredible, and we're going to cover a lot from low carb, low carb diets, and the new new trend in the health field of a high fat approach, and how this is going to benefit you. We go into a few athletic recovery modalities, how athletes should be training with their with their strength versus endurance, and how to combine both. As well as some common injuries that he's seen a lot of his um, throughout his career with a few of those clubs that I've mentioned, um, and just in the sporting industry, whether it's ACL, hamstring injuries, and maybe just some common ways you can avoid a few of these. So, really good episode, guys. If you if you got any questions, feel free to shoot them through, and I'll make sure we have them answered, whether that's by myself or Dr. Peter Peter Bruckner. Um, but nonetheless, you enjoy the episode, and uh, it's good to be back. <laughs> Uh, I loved. I was either playing sport or watching sport or reading about sport all the, all the time. Um, and, and I guess you know when I uh, when I left school, I, I probably in my heart of hearts, I really wanted to be a sports commentator or something like that. Really, yeah. but um, uh, you know, Bruce McAvaney would uh, would never have got a job if I'd been around. But um, <laughs> no. Uh, but my mother very sensibly convinced me to do medicine. Uh, she didn't think sports commentary was a particularly secure career, so um, so I did uh, I did medicine, and um, um, I guess you know kept playing a lot of sport and uh, kept my involvement in sport. Then I finished up uh, as a doctor, and and uh, initially I was going to. F- the sports medicine didn't really exist when I uh, graduated as a career path, you know, it was just, uh, so I started off in general practice and then uh, I had more and more of a sort of a following really, because I was interested in, in sports and injuries and so on. There weren't too many doctors around. So it gradually okay. yep. became more of a sort of sports medicine practice than a general practice. And then, uh, so I took the opportunity to take the plunge into full-time sports medicine um, and opened up a clinic at uh, Olympic Park in Melbourne. And yep. um and that was the start of it all, I guess. Um, I, uh, I'd been very involved in uh, in university sport. When I was at university, I started playing football for a club called Uni Blues and the uh, and the amateurs in uh, amateur football in Melbourne. And um, I sort of got very involved with that and finished up as president. And uh, and sort of as a direct result of that, really, yep. I got offered uh, a uh, trip with 
the Australian University's team to the World Student Games in, uh, in Edmonton. And uh, that was my first sort of opportunity to work with an international team. And, um, and that was fantastic. And, um, you know, I, uh, I had to pay my own way and there was no funding for it. And uh, I'd just come back from overseas and had no money and it wasn't a good time. But uh, I just thought, no, I've got to take that opportunity. So, yeah, you know, sort of, it, it's interesting because it really is a direct result of my sort of volunteer work, I guess, with a, with a club. I got that sort of reward and I'm a great uh, advocate of people volunteering because I think that's, uh, you know, you've got to start off that way. You've got to uh, earn your stripes and um, get experience and so on. And uh, then, you know, good things happen. So yeah, awesome. I got that gig and then I got another gig to the next uh, student game. They'd never taken a doctor before, but they decided to take one this time. I did finish up yeah. doing three of those yep. in Edmonton, Canada, Kobe, Japan and, and Zagreb, which was then in Yugoslavia. And, you know, you meet people there, you meet coaches. And so, you know, the swim team asked me to work with them and, you know, different, uh, different teams and so on. So th that and, and the clinic were, and then at the same time, as I started the clinic, I got uh, approached to be the Melbourne football club doctor in the AFL or the VFL, as I was said, in, in Melbourne. So mm. that was sort of the starting points, I guess, of my, of my sports medicine career and then sort of went from there. Yeah, awesome. Obviously, what is most of your time spent doing now? I know you've had a long history. Sort of, you've recently finished up with the Australian cricket team. Um, as you just said, you work with multiple AFL clubs. Even spent some time in England, Liverpool, and that is most of your time just spent within your business practice side of things now. Yeah, look, I guess uh, you know, for for the vast majority of my career, I combined uh, my work at the clinic with my work with teams, uh, be that local teams, uh, as you said, with Melbourne or with uh, the Socceroos or with the athletics team, which I did for a long time, and so on. Um, I guess, uh, and I finished up with uh, then I went to Liverpool um, and uh, then went had five years with the Australian cricket team. That finished up a couple of years ago, the cricket team. And um, I guess the reason uh, or what I'm really passionate about now is, is, uh, is getting people to eat better. Yep. Uh, and that's my real, uh, what I want to try and uh, do for the rest of my, uh, my career, if you like. Um, I had a sort of a, uh, I, I guess, you know, one of those sort of uh, change of life moments uh, a few years ago, back in, in 2012, actually. I was uh, in Liverpool and um, I, uh, I was probably not, all that healthy at the time, although I didn't really yeah. realise it. I was quite overweight and uh, had a whole lot of sort of metabolic issues and so on. Yeah. And um, I started to sort of uh, hear a few rumours that there were people suggesting that uh, what we'd been eating and the way we'd been looking at it was all wrong and that it was that maybe it wasn't fat that was the problem. It was uh, it was carbohydrates and so on. And I sort of thought that was all a lot of rubbish to be honest to start with. And then the more I read, the more I realised that there was uh, you know there was something in this. And um, when I started to, I thought, well. I'll, try it myself i'll give it a go for, for three months and see what happens yep. and i had this just dramatic uh improvement in my in my health and i lost a whole lot of weight and all my health issues that i'd had for some time completely yep. resolved and uh it was just sort of one of those things you just come to the end of the three months and you think wow i can't believe this uh, this just yeah. happened and, so uh, during these three months were you reducing reducing sort of your, your carbohydrates completely were you just sort of yeah. Yeah, no, I went pretty, uh, pretty strict for three months, you know, yep. so I stopped uh, eating, uh, you know, all, uh, all sugars, obviously, and uh, all carbohydrates, all pasta, rice, potatoes, bread, and so on. And I sort of went back to probably eating the way that my, you know, parents or grandparents had eaten, just eating yep. real food, you know, eating meat and fish and vegetables and, and, uh, and dairy and eggs and so on, just old fashioned sort of stuff, but nothing out yep. of a packet, everything sort of, uh, everything real food. 
And yeah. uh, it was just incredible. I just you know, kept losing weight and I kept feeling better. And uh, as I said, all my blood tests uh, went back to normal and it was just, just blew me away. Yeah, and, uh, and I started reading more and, and getting more interested in, in it because really uh, once you get delve into it, you realize that uh, the sort of guidelines that we've all been eating off for the last sort of 50 years uh, that you assume are sort of based on science and, you know, got good sort of uh, evidence for it all, have zero evidence and, and zero science and, uh, and are based more on money and politics and, and the US agriculture industry yeah. and so on. So uh, that really just blew me away. I just could not believe what I was, uh, what I was reading and, uh, and so on. So, and I guess, you know, to cut a long story short, as a result of that, I become a passionate advocate of uh, of eating real food and uh, avoiding junk and, and processed foods and, uh, and particularly reducing the amount of sugar and carbohydrates. And uh, that's really become my, my passion. That's what I spend most of my time doing now. We established a, a charity a few years ago called Sugar by Half. Oh, I'd say um, that, yeah. Which as the name indicates, uh, the aim of that is to reduce the amount of, uh, of added sugar uh, eaten by Australians. Uh, we, we average probably about 16 teaspoons of sugar a day. Yeah, uh, I've added sugar a day, and and the World Health Organization recommends that you, know, you should have no more than six, really. So uh, we want to get that down to about that level, and um, so we've got a whole lot of uh, programs going uh, going now. It's, it's very stimulating, very exciting stuff. I've got a great group of people uh, we work with, and um, yeah, I guess that's what I spend most of my time with now. I'm still involved in in some sport. I'm doing a little bit of work just. Uh, half a day a week at the Melbourne Football Club. So again, back to my uh, my very first club, which is quite ironic, um, yep. 30 years later. Yeah, yeah. Um, just doing a consulting role there, uh, you know, doing a bit of mentoring and uh, helping out some of the young docs there. They're going to need help and, this year, uh, Peter. Sorry? I reckon they might need help this year after last year. No, 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 they'll be fine. They'll be they'll fine. Be fine. <laughs> <laughs> well, I figured they couldn't get any worse. So, uh, you know, we could only get better, really. Yeah. But, uh, no, no, it's a good group. Uh, Darren Burgess, who I worked with uh, previously in the Socceroos in Liverpool, he came came back to Melbourne as the high performance manager, and uh, I guess he figured I took him twenty thousand kilometres to Liverpool. He could probably take me five kilometres to Melbourne. Yeah. So I, couldn't really, I couldn't really argue that point too much, and uh, I'm enjoying that uh, that sort of little role there. I'm still involved with, uh, with that same amateur football club I was involved with 50, 50 years ago, Uni Blues. Um, okay. So I go down there, you know, a couple of times a week and Saturdays and. I also help uh, help run a hockey club and uh, and so on. So I have my sporting involvement, and I'm involved in a bunch of other little yeah. uh, businesses and startups and, uh, and and programs and so on. So yeah, look, I've got more than enough on my plate. I travel quite a bit. Uh, I do a lot of speaking, um, yeah. both around Australia and, and overseas. Uh, I probably do uh, one or two talks a week to uh, different organisations, uh, be they medical practices or conferences or Rotary clubs or schools or you know, uh, last week I went to Swan Hill and to Warrnambool and, uh, you know, so I get around a lot and uh, give a lot of talks. Uh, and again, just basically trying to get people to uh, to be more aware of what they should be eating and uh, mm. and, and improve their uh, their eating. Because I think that's really the single most important factor in our, in our health at the moment. I want to ask you about that, Peter. With, the, um, with your low carbohydrate approach, are you sort of advocating towards the ketogenic diet or it's more so not... not yeah, look, uh, I mean, I think, you know... Uh, I think basically we, we, you know, my general principle is that we need to reduce our carbs and, and increase our healthy fats. And, and, uh, um, and, and that, that's, I guess, a spectrum, really. I mean, the, the ketogenic diet, which is a very extreme form of that, that low carb, is, uh, you know, is appropriate, I think, for people who have significant 
you know, metabolic health issues. Um, yep. But most people don't need to go that extreme, if you like, if they just reduced uh, their carbs uh, down to a sort of what we call a low carb level, yep. rather than the very high carb level that the majority of people are on, they will notice uh, significant uh, improvements in their health. So, uh, yeah, with that, what would you actually classify as low carb? Is that sort of 100 grams of carbohydrates a day? Yeah, to yeah, about 100, 120 grams. Yeah, I mean, uh, certainly yeah. you know, my own experience was that I was probably like everyone else eating, you know, 200, 300 grams uh, of carbs a day, lots of bread and pasta and rice and all the things we've been told to eat for, for ages. Yeah. And then I probably went for my three months of hardcore, I probably went to, into a ketogenic sort of a diet. So I was probably eating 30 to 50 grams of carbs a day. So, you know, that was pretty, uh, pretty low. Um, yeah. And then after that, I just eased off a little bit and I found what was right for me. And, and I, I believe that everyone has a sort of a, a carb level, if you're amount, you know, that is right for them. It depends yeah. on how you know, how they tolerate carbohydrates, how insulin resistant they are. And, and, and I'm probably about, I don't know, I'm probably about, I never really measure them, but I'm probably about 70 or 80 grams a day yep. uh, at the moment. Um, I have a few veggies, I have a few berries, I have, uh, you know, uh, occasional bit of sourdough bread or something, but, you know, by and large, I, I, I eat real food, you know. So uh, my, my sort of, I only eat twice a day because, you know, when you don't eat carbohydrates, you just don't get hungry. So shouldn't have fats and proteins just to make you a lot fuller. So I'll probably eat, you know, usually late morning, you know, I might have, uh, you know, a big bowl of uh, full fat Greek yogurt with some nuts and seeds and some berries, or I'll have some, you know, eggs and bacon and avocado or something like that. And then in the evening, I'll just have, uh, you know, standard sort of uh, meat or fish and, uh, and some green veg. And uh, if I'm still hungry, I might have some berries and cream and yeah, maybe a square of dark chocolate with a coffee or something so you know i, I eat uh made really well but uh yep. i just don't eat any uh, any processed foods or any uh, any junk food and uh still really enjoy what i eat and yep. never hungry really it's terrific awesome. yep. nuts. if i get a bit hungry i just have a handful of nuts or some cheese or something and uh yeah yep. I'm very happy with, with, the, uh, I eat. with the carbohydrate content how would you how would you differ this for athletes? Um, obviously, you've worked with a lot of competitive athletes who are sort of, they've got strenuous training sessions once, sometimes twice, even three times a day. Um, how much is carbohydrate intake going to be more important to these kind of athletes? What do you still yeah, think? Yeah, well, athletes have always relied very heavily on, on carbohydrates and still the majority of athletes uh, do uh, these days. So, and it, there's an interesting move in a lot of endurance athletes now who don't require that really high intensity sort of activity. Yeah, seem to be switching more to the low carb sort of healthy fat. Uh, so you know, Ironman and, and and people like that. So uh, is that the uh, endurance athletes? Yeah. Look, I think uh, you know there's a lot of advantages to that in that you don't have to keep fueling yourself. I mean, if you do an Ironman, you know, and you're you're fueling yourself solely from carbohydrates, you have to keep you know, your carbohydrate stores run out after a couple of hours. So you have to keep, uh, keep eating and drinking, which is very difficult sometimes when you're, uh, when you're competing, it upsets your, your gastrointestinal tract and so on. So it's a great advantage if you don't have to keep eating the whole time. So uh, the, the low carb, higher fat diets, you don't have to uh, have to fuel so much during the race, which is an advantage. The disadvantage yep. is that it's probably uh, for high intensity activities, you probably do, most people probably do need carbohydrates. There are certainly players around. I mean, there are 
there are AFL players and others who are completely uh, low carb. But uh, the majority of people, um, a lot of people now are a lot of football clubs and so on are doing a, a bit of a hybrid uh, approach where during the week they'll be largely low carb and, and, and uh, burning fat as their fuel. Yep. And then on, on game day or even on their, their heavy training day, they'll have uh, some extra carbs just to uh, just top up. So the argument there is that you're getting the best, best of both worlds. But we certainly don't need the amount of carbs that we thought we did uh, you know, back in the old days. Now, how, how, would you, um, how would you recommend just someone, just the, sort of the general population, sort of actually testing what diet, how much carbohydrate is going to work best for them? Because obviously, as you've said, it's going to be different for everyone. Um, some people might work best off more carbohydrates as opposed to others. So is it... Yeah, yeah. Look, I think that's, that's right. So I, I think you know, a little bit depends on on you know, as I said, on your sort of state of health, really. Um, you know, if you're sort of uh, obese or you know significantly overweight, and uh, or you're type two diabetic, or you've got metabolic syndrome, or you've got any other chronic sort of condition, then then it's probably worth uh, you know going pretty hard on the, on the low carb to get everything under control. And uh, once that uh, once that happens, which may take you know, it might take. In my case, it took, say, three months, you know, I got my weight down, you know, 13 kilograms and then resolved all my metabolic issues. And then, then I just sort of backed off a little bit, added a few more carbs. And then, uh, you know, until I found what was right for me, the, 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 the amount of carbs that kept my weight at the weight that I wanted to and, uh, and gave me the energy and, and so on and kept my blood tests uh, under control. So, you know, as I said, I think for most people that's, uh, that's under 100, uh, you know, under 100 grams of carbs a day. Um, if you really want to uh, get you know, your metabolic health under control for a short period of time anyway, you need to go uh, significantly lower than that. Yeah. Uh, is there any sort of, I guess you could say, hacks or biohacks as such that you can sort of utilise across the day to sort of just stabilise that, that insulin response? So I know sort of if I'm going to have a high-carbohydrate meal, I'll make sure I go for a walk after it, even little things like apple cider vinegar. Um, is there anything like that that you're sort of familiar yeah, with? Look- yeah, I, I, you know, I just think you're better off just to, you know, yeah, avoiding yeah. the carbohydrates. It's pretty, pretty simple, really. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and as I said, you know, you don't need them. I mean, it's just, uh, you know, what you do have to be is just a little bit better organised, you know. So because if you want to have a snack from the, the local servo or something, you know, you, the, all the all the, your only options are high carbohydrates. So if you're uh, if you're smart about it and uh, get yourself organised, and, and uh, I think one of the important things is is, is is eating more at home. You know, we eat far too much, you know, out and uh, whether it's takeaway or Uber Eats or uh, restaurants or whatever. I mean, we've lost the art of cooking and, uh, you know, I'm, I try and eat at home most uh, most times now. Uh, yep. We used to get a lot of takeaway and so on. We don't uh, do any of that now. It's just easier just to, uh, you know, throw some meat on the stove or, or fish or something like that and have some veggies and it's a terrific meal. So yeah. it's uh, a lot easier. So. Uh, if I had to say one thing, it, it, it's just real food rather than processed food. You know, you don't need to get too hung up on uh, on carbs and fats and protein. I mean, if you just stick to, to real food. Um, yeah. you know, I want to ask you that. When you're talking about real food, are you, so say when you're you're choosing your meat sweet, are you looking for grass-fed kind of sources of beef? Um, oh, yeah, look, if, if, if possible, you know, yeah. I think uh, it's probably, you know, marginally better than, than but, you know, the main thing is just to, Get good quality, you know, good quality meat if you can. Um, you know, obviously, it uh, depends on on price and availability and all sorts of things. But uh, you know, if uh, the better quality food you have, uh, the better. But yep. you know, certainly fresh meat's much better than you know, processed meat and and uh, and so on. So, um, but uh, yeah, I try and eat you know fish you know, two or three times a week as well. Uh, have plenty of green green veg, you know, or uh, you know. Um, 
broccoli or beans or uh, or spinach or whatever or cauliflower or whatever. Um, I want to ask: do, do we have to be careful about the amount of um, plants and vegetables we consume at all? Look, I think some people do. I think most people tolerate plants and veggies pretty well. Um, there are some people who uh, have an intolerance to certain uh, ones, to lectin-containing ones or FODMAPs or, or whatever. But it's a little bit of trial and error. I mean, I think, you know, your body will tell you what, uh, what you know, what you're suited to. If you're getting sort of, a, you know, abdominal discomfort and bloating and, and uh, you know, constipation or diarrhea, any of those sort of issues, then probably what you're eating is not uh, is not right for you, and you've got to sort of play around and, and try and eliminate certain things and see what uh, see what the cause of those problems are. So I said, for some people it's certain vegetables, uh, for others it's dairy, uh, for others it might be uh, you know all sorts of uh, of different causes. So um, you know I think it's a matter of, of of experimenting a little bit and finding out what's right for uh, for you, but. We all we certainly know that the things that aren't right for you, and that's uh, that sugar and highly processed uh, carbohydrates, uh, and uh, and and you know vegetables are probably not uh, not good for you either. So if you're going to start off by avoiding them, you're uh, you're well on the way to uh, to eating a lot better. Yeah, yeah, awesome. I want to shift gears a little bit, Pete. I want to go to the sort of sports medicine side of things. Um, sure. I want to I want to discuss what are some of the some of the most common um, issues, I guess not just injuries but it could be um, illnesses those kind of things that you've had to deal with over the years I know it's going to differ between sort of different sports but I'm talk, I'm discussing with Julian Faller later on this week about I'm quite familiar with Julian after having two knee reconstructions ACL um, we're going to go into depth about ACL prevention would you say ACL tears are one of the most common things if so is there anything to sort of you can do to reduce the risk um, or what are some common issues that you have felt with whether it's hamstring strains those kind of things yeah well look obviously the, the acl and i'll leave uh, leave julian to talk about acls but uh, the acl is is while it's not the most common injury it's the most common disastrous injury if you like for a, for an athlete uh, because uh you know your acl is is the is the ligament in the middle of your knee that, that you basically uh, most people need it if they want to play elite sport you occasionally get away without it but the majority of people you need an intact ACL to to do sort of pivoting, you know, twisting and turning sort of movement. So it's a pretty important important uh, ligament, and we can't repair it. We have to reconstruct it, and so on. So you know, for footballers or netballers, it's a it's a year out of a out of their career, which is pretty devastating uh, for anyone. So that's a really tough uh, tough injury, and uh, you know, a counselling people about it and uh, giving them the support. Uh, that's required is 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 really important. Mm. Can you prevent them? Um, there's been a lot of work in the last few years about uh, prevention programs for for ACL, and there's some uh, there's some pretty exciting stuff uh, happening. We've obviously got a huge issue with uh, ACLs in female elite females athletes at the moment, particularly uh, AFL players. And so we're uh, what what is what is the difference between the female and male athletes? Oh, well, there's certainly a much higher rate of of ACL, and there's a number of reasons for that. We're not uh, we don't think there's any one particular reason, but uh, okay. it's the way, it's the mechanics of the, the female. There's sort of a, there's wider hips. I uh, mean, there's more of an angle at the knee. So there's more stress on the knee uh, that way. Oh, um, yeah. We also think in, uh, in, in AFL, for instance, that there are a lot of them have crossed from another sport and haven't learned probably the sort of the, the, the right way to sort of uh, tackle and fall and, uh, and land and so on uh, that, you, you know, you tend mm-hmm. to learn where you when you're a kid, uh, you know, growing up through football. Um, yeah. So I think the sort of the next generation have come through playing a, a lot of football as a as a young girl might be a, might be better off in that regard. Yeah. But um, 
Yeah, I have a, have a role at, uh, at La Trobe University and, and the, uh, the Sports Medicine Research Centre there has been working closely with the AFL in developing uh, some injury prevention programs. Um, and they've got an outstanding program called Prep to Play, uh, which is available uh, on, online. And uh, that uh, we're hoping that will reduce the, uh, the some of the you know, studies uh, overseas have, have shown a 50% reduction in, uh, in ACL injuries, yeah, right. especially in females. So uh, I think it's certainly worth incorporating some of these, uh, these prevention programs in, uh, in warm-ups and in, uh, in pre-season and so on. So we're never going to get rid of them completely. Um, but the, the, uh, if we can reduce the incident, that's, uh, that's good. I guess the other injuries that, uh, that are a nightmare for all of us, hamstrings are, uh, are a you know, constant problem. We, uh, you know, despite we, we know a lot more about hamstrings than we used to, but it's still the most common injury in, uh, in sports like AFL and soccer. Mm. Um, and, uh, you know, we're doing a lot of prevention work with that too. We do a lot of exercises, specific exercises uh, um, to try and prevent uh, hamstring injuries. Is it, have, you any, um, have you got any favourite exercises like Nordics or anything? Or oh, that... yeah, I like Nordics. Yeah, I think, you know, I mean, Nordics have been shown to, uh, to work. You know, there's yeah. very strong evidence that uh, uh, you do these Nordic hamstring exercises and uh, you significantly reduce the, the risk. So we have all of our, uh, of our sporting teams uh, regularly doing Nordics uh, in pre-season and maintaining them during the, during the season. That's a guarantee. It's part of the strength program. Sorry? Is, is that are they conducting the Nordics pre-training, post-training, or just part of a strength training? Oh, look, it varies. You know, usually post-training, or you know, if you're doing a gym session, or, or uh, you know, if uh, just at an amateur club or something. If you know, you're training Tuesday and Thursday night, you know, as part of your warm down, you do some uh, you do some Nordics and some. Uh, a uh, couple of other, you know, some groin exercises and well, and so on. So, mm. you know, obviously we'd rather prevent, ex- you know, prevent uh, than cure. Um, so prevention is uh, is important. But as I said, we uh, we we haven't succeeded in completely eliminating uh, injuries, which probably wouldn't be good for me. We'd be out of out of a job, wouldn't I? So, uh... <laughs> sure. I want to ask Pete um, something that I've often wondered is striking a balance between. Um, obviously, with a sport like AFL, for instance, that training balance between strength, um, building muscle in the gym, and then also a lot of aerobic conditionings, running, those kind of sessions. Um, and working as a personal trainer, I get asked this a lot. How do you sort of, how do you strike a balance? How do you sort of not counteract? Um, so losing all your muscle that you put on the gym ball, the running you do. Do you think there is a, um, there's a middle ground? And if so, what would be the best approach, do you think? Yeah, look, that's, that's a huge challenge. I mean, you know, I, I always sort of think that the AFL footballer is almost a complete athlete, you know, because, uh, you know, they, they really have to tick just about every box, you know, they have to be strong, fast, endurance, et cetera, et cetera, you know, balance, agility and so on. So, you know, a lot of other sports are, are you know, just one or two of those uh, features uh, and so on. It might be just strength and power or it might be just uh, endurance or whatever. But the, 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 uh, the AFL uh, footballer really has to tick all those boxes. So it's a huge challenge uh, in conditioning. Um, yeah. And I guess that's why, you know, there's so much emphasis on pre-season and, uh, uh, and that. I think you can get a balance. Um, you know, I think uh, you know you don't you want to be stronger and, and more powerful, but you don't want to be necessarily be too big. Um, and uh, again, it partly depends on the position you play. You know, I think um, you know obviously uh, if you're a more of a running player, then uh, you know you need to focus on on your running. But you know, everyone needs to run and everyone needs to be strong. You know, so it's quite uh, quite challenging. And and uh, 
you know, load is uh, is the big you know it's the big word these days, isn't it? I mean, uh, you know, how do you how do you determine what load you can uh, you can give players, uh, both in, particularly in a pre-season situation? You know, you obviously want to give them as much as possible, but without breaking them down. Um, you know, you, do you err on the side of too much or too little? Um, it, it's very challenging, and that's I guess part of the art and the science of uh, of conditioning that. Uh, you know, you've got to have a feel of what's right for one person may not necessarily be right for someone else. I mean, certainly back in the day when I started, you know, in the AFL, every, pretty much everyone did the same training, you know, no matter yep. where you played, what position you were. Now, you know, it's very much individualised for uh, the type of uh, type of body you have, you know, what your strengths are and, and so on. So, uh, mm. yeah, it's, it's become much more scientific. You know, we measure things now. Gosh, we measure so much stuff. Uh, you know, they... Uh, you can't sneeze without uh, someone measuring at an AFL club yeah. at the moment. And, uh, is there any yeah. um, is there any measures that um, you, you would recommend to put in place to sort of track your recovery? Um, I know for myself, I've been using heart rate variability on a more, every single morning just to see, obviously, how well I'm responding from training. Or is it simply? Um, do you think it's just a matter of just gauge how you are feeling? Um, or is there, are there little things? Yeah. Like heart rate Look, there are lots of things. You know, we used to just do resting heart rate, and and then now heart rate variability. Uh, I think they can be be useful. But look, I think the single most important. I mean, you know your body. You know, yeah. and I think you know when uh, you know when you're fatigued or when you're feeling sick or or so on. And and the important thing is listen to your body. Um, you know, your body will tell you what, uh, you know, whether you're right to go or, or not right to go. And uh, I think it's really important if, if you're not feeling right, then uh, then back off. You know, don't uh, don't push yourself because then you, know, you get yourself in a real, real trouble. So, you know, there's uh, there's an art to it as well as, as science. You have all the measurements you like, but, uh, you know, you, you tend to know your own body. And, yeah. Um, yeah. It's the most important thing, but uh, you know, recovery is obviously terribly, uh, terribly important. And uh, you know, I think the single most important thing in recovery is sleep. And I think that's something that we tend to ignore uh, or underrate. You know, we always we get obsessed with ice baths and cryotherapy and protein shakes and you know, Christ knows what else. But uh, you know, the most important way of recovering is sleep. And, yeah. Okay. Uh, you know, these days we we tend to sort of cut back on sleep, and uh, you know, we're uh, you know we're uh, in front of you know phones and you know lights and all sorts of things and we, we don't get to sleep and uh so on so yeah i think uh you know if i uh, had one advice about uh athletes who are training hard is make sure you get enough sleep mm-hmm. what about the um what, what about the cold baths and the uh the sauna use so when when you think is the most practical time for these kind of things i know sort of from what i've done the research something as simple as an ice bath sort of post gym sessions, not the greatest idea as it's going to stop that sort of anabolic response. Um, whereas a sauna after a gym session might be, it might actually help with growth hormone. Um, is there any evidence behind this, these kind of things? Yeah, look, it's, it's very controversial, isn't it? I mean, uh, you know, the, I mean, we've all been doing ice bars now for 20 years probably, you know, and yet there's, there's never really been good convincing scientific evidence. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, yeah, we've uh, we've certainly at, at Melbourne backed off ice bars, certainly in the pre-season uh, yeah. anyway, um, for that reason that we, we want to, uh, we actually want to encourage some, in, you know, an inflammatory, a mild inflammatory response and, uh, and an anabolic response. So uh, uh, I think there's a bit of a move away from uh, from that now. I, I do think post-game it, it might help. 
um, yep. you know, especially at a, at a contact sport where you're, uh, you know, you've got some uh, some bruises and uh, and some knocks and so on. So, would you, uh, would you recommend that sort of the day of a game, or is it important to still sort of get that some anabolic response and wait till the sort of the next? Well, yeah, look, I, I still think that, I think the jury's still out on that. Um, yep. I don't mind ice bars after a game, um, okay. and uh, and or else you know going in the down St Kilda Beach on uh, on a Saturday on a Sunday morning after a game. Um, yep. Again, whether it's a placebo effect or whether it's real, it's a little bit hard to say. But mm-hmm. uh, I think that's not a, not a bad idea. Um, but I think you know, good nutrition, good rest, uh, you know, avoiding alcohol, those sorts of things are important post uh, post game for everyone. Yeah. How much is the um, how much is the sort of the carbohydrate sort of loading going to come into this? Is that more important post exercise now? Oh yeah, but I think particularly protein post exercise is important. So uh, you know whether you need protein shakes or not is problematic. But I mean you certainly need a good protein meal um, after uh, after a game uh, yeah. to help recovery. Um, and uh, again, carbohydrate it depends. You know a little bit on whether you, you know whether you're to- totally fueling yourself with carbohydrate. Uh, in which case you probably need to replenish your supplies. But if you're a, a mixture of, of fat and carbohydrate, you know, then it's not you know, not as important and as urgent. So uh, we're in an interesting phase. You know, I think we're learning a lot more about uh, about nutrition and, uh, and and strength and recovery and so on. And I think we, uh, we'll learn a lot more over the next few years. Yeah, awesome. Now, Peter, is there any other sort of strategies um, that you do yourself or you have athletes um, sort of do on a daily basis to one, either sort of reduce inflammation, stress in the form of, you've obviously spoken about sleep, nutrition. Is there any other sort of little daily practices in the form of either meditation that either you conduct or, as I said, athletes? Um, just little things like that that are sort of going to help with the stress reduction and sort of reduce inflammation? Yeah, look, I think, uh, you know, I think, you know, stress reduction is, is important, uh, you know, particularly, I mean, in, in all aspects of life, really. Uh, so whether it's mindfulness or whether it's yoga or, you know, there, you know, some, you know, some people are, are better suited to, to other others. Uh, you know, it's a little bit like exercise regimes, you know, you've got to find one that you enjoy and that, 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 that suits you. And so there are different ways that we can reduce, uh, reduce stress. Um, but uh, you know, I think some of the, the mindfulness uh, apps and so on can be very, uh, very helpful. Um, I think uh, you know some people don't like that sort of stuff, so I, you know I tend to push them more towards maybe yoga or something. Yeah. So there are different ways of uh, of doing things. So I think that that's important. So you know, I, I think you've just got to tick the boxes. You know, obviously we know that exercise is important for health. You know, we know that uh, a good, you know, healthy real food diet. We know that uh, sleep's important. We know that stress reduction is important. I think getting out in the sun's important, getting some sunshine for vitamin D. You know, not obviously not getting burnt, but just getting exposure to sun. I think we've gone too far the other way in, uh, in the sun side of things. So, you know, there's a whole bunch of, uh, of things that we, uh, that we know that are pretty you know, simple, logical lifestyle uh, factors that uh, can improve not just athletic performance, but your general health as well. You know, yeah. So, uh, you know, that, uh, and the other thing is just, you know, is just having other interests and having, enjoying life and having fun and, and friendships and, uh, and social interactions, you know, I think are really, uh, really underrated in importance in mental health and, uh, and so on, because, you know, we've uh, got a massive issue with mental health in, in young people, whether they be sports people or, or, uh, or people not playing sport. And, uh, you know, we need to, to be aware and to support those people, but people have got to find, 
interests and, and passions and, and, and friendships and so on that uh, you've got to put time and effort into that because you can get terribly worked up in you know, your work or your sport and so on and neglect those other areas and the, that's when you get into trouble I think. Thank you once again for not only today but um, the past couple of weeks responding to emails and sort of taking the time. I know you're you seem very, very busy, man. What you got coming up? But... Well, all of a sudden, I've got some free time because I was going to America tonight for two weeks to a conference oh, yeah? and like that, and I've canned it. So, uh, um, well, the university has basically slapped a ban on overseas travel and so yep. on. So, uh, I thought, oh well, uh, I'll. Uh, so, I've got got a bit of spare time. So, That'd I've got good. a I've got a two-page list of all the things I've got to do in the next week, and uh, I'm uh, plowing through it. So, uh, yeah. I'll get back. <laughs> 